Good morning, everyone. Our uh, reading today comes from Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been uh, brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Excited to be back with you this morning in Romans. And uh, this is, I think, one of the most important passages in Romans, Romans chapter 6. And one of the first places where we come to instruction in Romans, and it sets the, the tone for what is to come. So we, we have to get this. And so we've chosen in the middle of the summer here, with a lot of us missing, uh, to do one of the most important passages in Romans. Now, one of the reasons that so many Christians are losing or seem to be losing the struggle with sin is their faulty view of sin and what actually takes place at conversion. You see, how we think about what happens to us when we are born again impacts how we live today. And so our passage this morning is wonderful because we should see in it how God, through Paul, is commanding us to embrace a critical and foundational truth. The power of sin's dominion has been broken for those who have been born again. And that is, while we all still fail to live sinless lives, and while we still all regularly Uh, see temptation to sin, we can and we should live lives characterized by victory over sin. And Paul has already established that both Jew and Gentile alike were sold under sin in and through our common ancestor Adam, and that we were equally condemned under sin, and that we are both saved in the same way. The law was of no effect at all to produce genuine righteousness in us. And so now Paul makes it clear that despite his message being of grace alone, which comes without the law, his gospel is not a message that promotes sin. It is a message that leads to the obedience of faith. 
<clears throat> so in chapter 5, Paul has just told us that the law only causes trespass to increase. And then in chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, an evil person could jump on that statement and distort it as a license to sin. They might say, if, if sin is an occasion for greater grace, then I might as well go on sinning so that God will be glorified by showing such amazing grace to me. But Paul fiercely rejects such a conclusion. The opposite is true. The grace that believers received is so powerful that it breaks the dominion of sin. This grace delivers not merely from punishment, but from, from sin's power and rule. Grace doesn't simply involve forgiveness of sins. It also involves a transfer of lordship so that believers are no longer under the tyranny of sin. And as they experience victory over sin, their confidence in a full and complete triumph over both sin and death increases and increases. Paul has just said, chapter 5, verse 17, that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. And in verse 21, that just as sin once reigned in death, now in Christ, grace reigns through righteousness, which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this leaves us wondering, how then does this change of rulership from the reign of sin and death to the reign of righteousness and life take place in our lives? And this is where we come to in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Sin entered the world through Adam and exercised dominion over all people. And those outside of Christ are slaves to sin, Romans 6.20. But believers have been liberated from the rule of sin. How? Through the death of the old self. Think about it. Follow Paul's analogy here. What can a dead person do? Nothing, right? That is exactly the point. If your old sinful self is dead, it is now impossible for that self to cause sin because dead people cannot do anything. In this way, the dominion of sin has been broken in the lives of believers. Now, don't, don't miss the fact here that Paul is not giving the Christians in Rome a command to die to sin in this passage like he does in Colossians, Colossians 3, 5 to 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, elsewhere, we get commands to put to death the old man, to put off the old man, and to put on Christ, but there is no command here in the early verses of Romans chapter 6. Instead, Paul is reminding us of something that has already happened, something that is already true. When we are born again, our relationship to sin radically changes. We are now dead to it. Now, if anyone thinks that they are free to live 
in whichever way they please, after becoming a follower of Jesus, they have embraced a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. If anyone believes that they are free to engage in the very same sins that sent Jesus to the cross for them, they have embraced another gospel. And this is not just a distortion of Christianity, is it a fundamental denial of Christianity? And yet, how commonplace is this sort of thinking in Christian circles today? Yes, we must all agree that good works will not count towards our justification, but if they are not there, it proves that faith is not there either. Your works don't give you salvation. The work of Jesus gives you salvation. But if you have not works in your Christian life, you are not a Christian. You have never been redeemed. You have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The question reflects an impossible position which Paul says is utterly unthinkable for someone who is a true believer. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, immediately when Paul begins to talk about dying to sin, he thinks of baptism because baptism symbolizes our spiritual death and resurrection that occurs at conversion. Romans 6, 3 to 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you not know? Is Paul's way of saying, come on, guys, you know this. He's reminding them of the basics of the faith. They already know that baptism is a picture of being buried with Christ, having died with Him, and then of being raised to new life just as Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the symbolism of baptism. When you became a Christian, the old you is put to death and buried. Part of the purpose of baptism then is to vividly remind the new Christian that their old life is over and a whole new life has begun. Just as all people were born in solidarity with Adam and with Adam's sin, in solidarity with Christ, hence his death and resurrection begins through baptism into him. Now, Paul's not saying here that the very act of baptism automatically gives us all the benefits of Christ's atonement. We know that, just as in the Old Testament many people were circumcised and never became believers, there are many people today who were baptized but who have never been regenerated, made alive in Christ. So Paul's not saying that baptism automatically conveys the benefits of the death of Christ. But the, the early church had no category for a believer who was unbaptized. That You just didn't call yourself a Christian if you had not yet been baptized. Baptism, across the letters of Paul and in all the writings of the early church, was seen as an initiation rite undergone by people as a means by which they confessed Jesus as Lord. So if you say, well, I confess Jesus as Lord, the way that they did this in the early church was to be baptized. It was a vital part of the full conversion initiation experience that involves repentance and faith in Christ expressed in submission to baptism on the part of the convert when God 
for his part, grants forgiveness and the gift of his Spirit. And so for Paul, baptism, faith, reception of the Spirit, repentance, confession of Christ, these are all one complex of events that all occur at conversion. And Paul is saying that all Christians have participated in the death and burial of Christ since all Christians received baptism, the universal initiation rite for believers in Christ. So at conversion, here pictured and summarized by the act of baptism, life starts over. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so our death to sin at baptism makes it possible for us to live a new life where righteousness reigns in life rather than sin and death. God has saved us so that we can now live a holy life that mirrors the character of our loving Father, the Son who died for us, and the Holy Spirit who indwells us and works in us to do His will. And so just as Christ came out of the tomb with a new power of life, a resurrected life, so the Christian, once they are reborn and justified by faith, is to show evidence of new life because a new power for life has been imparted to them by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We died with Christ in baptism united with Him in His once-for-all death, incorporated into Christ. We sing a song, yet not I, but Christ in me. This is the truth of it. We do nothing of ourselves, but not I, but Christ in me. His death is our death. His life, our life to live. And so grace cannot possibly lead believers to sin more because by dying with Christ, the power of sin has been definitively broken. Notice, There is still no imperative here, no command to follow, no rule to live by. It is the moral life of believers that is contemplated here. They live in a certain way as a result of having died and being buried with Christ. So Paul isn't telling us, go do this. He does that in other passages. But here he's just saying, this is the reality for those who are Christians. They have died with Christ and now are alive to God to live in His way. Verses 5 to 7, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We are united with Christ in a death like His. Or another perhaps more helpful way of putting it, in the likeness of His death. Which is to say that though the believer's death with Christ is a reality, we truly died with Him. It also denotes that our death with Him is like is not identical in every respect. We didn't all physically die at that point. We didn't all physically rise. That is a future hope, but we truly died with Him. The newness of life enjoyed by believers is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, those who are baptized 
that is, converted, experience the impact of Christ's death and resurrection in our present existence as we are enabled by the glorious power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, to walk in a new way. Christians are no longer enslaved by sin because we have died to it. Now, if you are not experiencing freedom from persistent sin, perhaps it is because you have never grappled with the fact that becoming a follower of Jesus requires that the old you die. So does this mean that the real test of being a Christian is whether or not we ever sin again? No. We know that the old man still has residual effect in our lives and that all Christians, in fact, continue to sin. 1 John 1, 8-10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, yes, we are sinners saved by grace. Any denial of this is to reveal someone as a liar. If someone says, I don't sin anymore, you know they are a liar because God is not a liar and God has called us sinners. But we are not merely sinners saved by grace. That is not all that we are. We are also sinners being transformed into the likeness of God's Son. As again, 1 John teaches us, uh, 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John, he likes to tell us a lot that if we say different things that we're liars. God's not a liar. God always tells the truth. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar. But if you walk in sin and say that you love God, you are also a liar. And then 1 John 2, 3 to 6, by this we know that we have come to know Him. How? Because we said we believed? Because we got baptized? Because we made a confession? Because we said a prayer? No. We, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if Christians still sin, how can Paul say that we are dead to sin and now freed from sin? We are freed from the dominion of sin in our lives. Sin and death are no longer the reigning power, but grace through righteousness. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. Uh, those of you who have studied Romans, as we come into Romans chapter 7, we've got to keep this in mind, that we are not slaves to sin. We still sin, and we still sin willfully, but a Christian can never say that they had to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
as believers, we, we face multitudes of opportunities and occasions for sin. Every moment, we are deciding between righteousness and unrighteousness, between godliness and ungodliness, and yet we can never at any given moment look at a particular temptation and say, I didn't have the power uh, of the, or the grace to resist that sin. The power is there. The grace is there. We may grow weary in well-doing and succumb to sin inevitably, but never again by necessity. We can't say, church, the devil made me do it, or my fallen nature made me do it. We may surrender to the lusts of our fallen nature, but we do have the power within us in Christ to resist. Slavery to sin is the lot of all those born to Adam. Not just in part, but the whole self is ruled by sin, affecting the whole of our existence. But freedom from sin's mastery is the portion of those who have been born again in Christ. Unbelievers do not possess freedom to choose not to sin. It possesses them. This does not mean that sin is forced on them against their will. It means that they invariably choose to sin because sin is the whole of their desire as those who belong to the first Adam. But believers have been liberated from such slavery to sin. We are freed from its clutches. It is not yet a perfect deliverance in this age so that we never sin at all. But what has been shattered is not just the presence of sin, but its mastery over us. Paul doesn't say that Christians cannot, in fact, sin, but that sin cannot, logically cannot, be a ruling principle for Christians. It cannot be what characterizes us. Believers are not free from the presence of sin, but we are free from its power, its tyranny, its mastery, its dominion over us. We will still battle the presence of sin until the day of redemption, but its rule over us is defeated now. I'm jumping ahead of my notes here, but we've got to tell ourselves this. We need to say, I am not mastered by this. This will not rule me. I have a choice here. Yes, I decided to sin, and yes, I decided to sin over and over and over again, but I can decide not to sin by the power of Christ who is in me. In verses 8 to 10, the emphasis shifts from dying with Christ to living with Him. Now, if we have died with Christ, if that conversion has taken place, if it is true of us that we died with Christ and are alive with Him, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The basis for this entire argument is that believers are incorporated into Christ. They are in him and he in them. That's what is true of Christ as our representative, is also true of us if we are believers. As the new and greater Adam, Jesus voluntarily experienced death as the consequence of our sin in order to break sin's dominion over us. And so genuine believers died with Him. 
Their death sentence for sin has been paid so that they are freed from its power. And this is not only affecting our eternal destination, but affecting our lives now. In fact, our lives can never be the same once we genuinely embrace the biblical gospel. In the same way, the power of the resurrection has penetrated this present evil age so that those who belong to Christ share in His triumph over death. We not only receive eternal life, but through this grace, righteousness reigns in us through this life as well. Again, these are objective truths. These are not things Paul's saying will be true of some. This is not something Paul is telling us we should do. These are objective truths which are true of all believers regardless of their subjective or experiential response. So this may not be something that you're feeling like you've received, but if you have put your faith in Christ, this is something that is true of you. We all have a different subjective or experiential growth and development in sanctification, but the objective truth is that all those in Christ are dead to sin. And so Paul expects believers to recognize these as foundational principles. Now what follows after these declarations, these objective truths, which are true of all genuine believers, are then four imperative verbs in verses 11 to 13, which represent two major commands which all believers must obey. And the first is in relation to how we are to think, Romans 6.11. And I, I believe this is one of the most important verses in Romans. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we've got ten verses telling us that we are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, if you're a convert, this is true of you. What is the command now? You must think so. (laughs) You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So also, meaning that since the previous statements are true, that believers are freed from sin to live lives unto God, now we must add to that objective truth a change in our perspective. Paul summons believers to agree with God's perspective. As God has considered us righteous, so we must also consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness in Christ. And so in Romans 12, 2, we are commanded to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is to say that in large part, our transformation hinges on the way our thinking needs to change. If we have wrong thinking, it will respond in wrong speaking and wrongdoing. And so we're called first to change our thinking, to have our perspective come into alignment with God's perspective. If our perspective is that I'm a sinner and I'm going to continue sinning for the rest of my life and there's nothing I can do about it, how am I going to live? The starting point of our transformation is changing our thinking about our relationship to sin. As we choose to actively renew our mind, training our minds to embrace the sure truth that we have died to sin, our lives will change. It is when we grasp and act on the foundational truth that is taught in Romans 6 that our lives will begin to change dramatically. 
To consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God is not an example of mind over matter. Instead, the judgment is based on what is already true by virtue of our being incorporated into Christ. If we are in Christ, this is true of us. On the basis of His activity, on His work, His death and resurrection, death to sin and life to God have become realities. So we're not trying to mind over matter this and say, well, if I can just think it hard enough, it will come true. We're coming, bringing our thoughts into alignment with the very Word of God, which is the truth. And so, so Paul summons us to be what we are. This is the great morality of the New Testament. The New Testament is never calling us to come and keep these rules so that you will become righteous. The New Testament always summons us to be who we already are in Christ. What is already a reality now needs to take root in our minds so that our thinking is changed, so that our activity is changed. Our identity is determined by being in Christ. But we must still choose to believe this reality in order to live accordingly. Through faith, one receives a new identity in Christ. And through faith, one must also continue to embrace and live out that new identity so that obedient works become expressions of a living faith. So how does considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God result in transformation? You know, we we constantly, sorry, commonly, I should say, we commonly strive to live according to expectations. You know, if if social expectations are that I will work roughly 40 40 hours a week, then when I work 60, I feel like I'm overworked, and when I work 20, I feel like I've been slacking. That, That social expectation has some impact on how I live my life. Maybe a, a better example is our, our mountain biking community uses an app called Strava, which conveniently for my analogy is also the Swedish word to strive. And this app maps out all the various biking trails and all the speeds at which they are accomplished so that not only can you compete for the top spots if you are far more fit than I am, but you, you get a general idea of how quickly a healthy adult should be able to finish any particular run. If, if you see that everyone else has much faster times, you know that you, if you are an athlete, should be able to clock a much quicker speed if you keep striving. So, so you see how fast everyone does the trail, and you're like, well, I'm doing this in half the speed. I better try harder. You, you start to strive to keep up to the expectation. Golfers have a similar concept called par. There's a particular score that, I should, that should be attainable if I am an accomplished golfer. And if I can't achieve it, well, then I shouldn't quit my day job yet. If you consider the Christian life to be one characterized by consistent and habitual sin, if that is par for you, then you will fail to strive accordingly against sin in your life. See how drastically this impacts us? If I think that it is common for Christians to just sin regularly and don't worry about it too much because grace, you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so don't worry about it. Then we'll think, yes, I'm a passable Christian, just like some of you think you're passable golfers. (laughs) Just, Just joking. Nobody in mind there. If you think... 
I am so constantly anxious and worried, but that is common for Christians. You might let yourself become comfortable with your sin. If you consider sexual sin to be common among Christians, then you might not be worried about your sin if you consider it par for the course. The problem, church, is that we have compared our lives to nominal Christianity and then lived accordingly. We have allowed habitual sin to be the norm, not only in our actions, but in the very mind of the church. And we have to take it back. To take back the mind of the church and bring it under the Word of God. How should we consider ourselves? We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we consider ourselves dead to sin, which we must, and alive to God in Christ Jesus, we will then strive accordingly. We must recognize that par for the Christian is not to give yourself over to the temptations that regularly assail us, but to resist, Hebrews 12, 4, in your struggle against sin, even to the point of shedding your blood. The mindset is everything. Once our minds are changed, then we can put it into action. And the action is also commanded here. In addition to a change of thinking, the remainder of our passage adds three more imperatives and then a confident conclusion. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I want to stop and just back up a little bit. We were told what is true. What is true, church? We are dead to sin and alive to Christ if we are believers. Then we are told, you must think this thing. This thing I just told you is true. Now you should consider this true. And then finally, act as though it's true. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 14 starts the next argument, so I'm going to bring it up again when we come back to Romans. But first, I want you to see these four steps. This is true. You should think this is true. You should live like this is true because sin will have no dominion over you. Paul knows the beginning and the end, commands us the middle. This is true of you. If you are a believer, you are dead to sin. Sin will have no dominion over you. You must think it's true. You must live like it's true. I know sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. But Paul fleshes out what is actively counting ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God looks like in very specific and practical ways. After changing our thinking, we must go beyond that and act in light of those truths. There are are choices to be made each and every day and each and every hour. Will we allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, acting like obedient slaves to its passions when Christ has already set us free? Will we willingly offer our bodies to be used for sin? Or will we live as the new people that God has already made us to be? 
Sin is once again conceived of as a power that threatens to rule over believers' bodies, causing them to live according to their desires. And here we are commanded to deliberately resist and conquer these passions. Against sin's dominion, Paul calls for active struggle. We must strive. See that being dead to sin here does not mean that desire for sin is no longer felt or, combat, uh, or combated. It's obvious that sin is still being desired. There's temptation to sin, though, is, is not sin. The enemy, the world, and our own passions will consistently tempt us to sin. But because we have died to sin, you and I now have the power to choose not to let sin rule our lives. It no longer has the power to make us obey its passions. Only we can give it that power now. And so we're commanded, don't give sin the power to direct you in its passions. The Christian no longer has sin as the dominant principle in their life. Certainly, the old sin nature is still there. There's still a habit of sin that still wants to capture us and rule over us. However, it is a usurper. It has no right to reign in our bodies. It has no power. It can only reign if we allow it to. And Paul says this is exactly what we ought not to allow it to do. So sin trying to do something in your church. It wants to capture you. It wants to possess you. It wants to enslave you. But it is a usurper. It has no authority, and it has no power to do so. Only what you give to it. Now, there's, there's probably a military image here in verse 13, especially since the word for instruments is usually translated weapons in Paul. So sin is conceived of as a usurping power to which believers must not submit their bodily members as weapons for unrighteous purposes. Instead, we are called to attention to present ourselves before God and to present our members as weapons for righteousness. We are at war. This is battle imagery. We are being mustered to war. And will we be at this war in contention with God, bringing our members to bear as weapons of unrighteousness and therefore come under His wrath? Or will we, as genuine believers, muster ourselves for, to war for righteousness? You can treat sin like a god and say, here I am, use my eyes, my hands, my words, my thoughts for unrighteousness. Or we can recognize that only God is worthy of such worship and say to Him, here am I, use my eyes, my hands, my words, my thoughts for righteousness. The scary thing, the sad thing, the horrible thing is when we sin as Christians, which we do, we do so willingly. Not because we are still slaves to sin. Sin is not our master and can only exercise control over us in the amount that we allow it to. But too many of us, though, have, have become enslaved again through habitually choosing to give in to sin's enticing voice. How can we identify with Christ's death on the cross by faith and then continue to live as though nothing has happened, as if there is no new power, as if we are still enslaved by sin, as if there is no resurrected life within our souls? 
it is impossible. The reality is most Christians have simply not believed what God says in Romans 6. They cannot conceive of being dead to sin. So, so normal and normative is Christians sinning habitually that we can't even conceive of this idea of being dead to sin. Most often, this is because we have not been taught to expect not to sin. In fact, we've been taught the opposite. We've been taught that as Christians, we should expect to sin a lot day by day, just sinning in as we come in, sinning as we go out, and God will just be really gracious to us. But that is not what Paul says is true of Christians here, not to be true of our thinking, not to be true of our actions, and what will not ultimately be true. So if we really are believing the genuine gospel, if we really are converts If we really are in Christ and His Spirit is in us, we are dead to sin, freed from its enslaving power. And yet we still remain vulnerable to being enslaved all over again. And this could be a reality. This could be what you're living right now, this enslavement to sin. And so this is why the Scripture describes our life in this world as a battle. And the starting point for winning that daily battle is changing the way we think. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So I charge you, church, this morning with the words of Ephesians 4, 21 to 24, Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with both joyful thanksgiving and deep repentance if your Spirit is at work in us. We're so thankful to you because what a great promise and joy that we are already freed. The greatest exodus, far greater than escape from slavery in Egypt, is the escape from slavery to sin. Because the escape from slavery to sin, sorry, the the slavery to sin walks with us no matter where I go. I can leave Egypt and still be filled with slavery to sin. So, God, we're so thankful that not only do you declare this truth for those who are your people, but you have also determined the end. We will not be dominated by sin. Father, we also come this morning in repentance because we have not thought this appropriately. We have not considered ourselves appropriately dead to sin, and we have not walked as those who are. We have sinned consistently in thought, word, and deed and considered that normal, considered that 
perfectly passable. Consider that par. But you have set a very different standard for us, a standard which we have fallen short of, and not just one that we will consistently fall short of, but one which you tell us you have empowered us to meet. You have empowered us to resist temptation. You have empowered us to obedience. You have made us dead to sin and alive through righteousness. And so, God, we ask that you would forgive us and give us faith that you not only forgive us, but that you transform us. Lord, I pray for this congregation here and those who will listen later that you would give them this sure hope that they are free from slavery to sin. Father, every time we are anxious, every time that we lust, every time that we covet, every time that we lie, every time that we gossip, every time that we're greedy, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us that we have chosen this because we are no longer under the rule of sin. But we have willfully chosen, like a dog returning to its vomit, to come to our sin. Impress upon us that we have the power, as Christ is in us, to live unto God. Change our thinking and so our actions to follow, that sin would have no dominion over us as you promise. And we ask this now for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen.